We come to the last day of the retreat and only four more meditations, but they are important, I think, because they are the ones which concern ourselves. Previously, we've been thinking in great part about our Lord becoming a man and dying for us. And really, in this last day, we have to think what implications this has for us. Our first meditation this morning, uh, we'll take um, what Cardinal Newman called witnesses to the resurrection. And again, I owe all my material to his help. I found reading his sermons and letters an enormous clarity in his understanding of the faith, uh, which I had not had before. And therefore, I hope the same effect will be with you. The t text he gives us for this, our meditation is worth reading. It comes from the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and is where Cornelius, one of the first Gentiles, is received into the church. And St. Peter there gives a talk to Cornelius and the others and uses the words which Cardinal Newman suggests we pray about today. Peter said he went about doing good works and healing all who were in the grip of the devil and God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him finally, hanging him on a tree only to have God raise him up on the third day and grant that he be seen, not by all, but by only such witnesses as had been chosen beforehand by God, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the point that St. Peter's making for us, and his words today mean a lot to us, as he was with our Lord from the start, with John the Baptist, is that he saw his role as a witness to the resurrection, and that's what he preached to Cornelius, and the same comes right down to us today, by word of mouth. Never since that day of Pentecost has there not been the message being passed on that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, Cardinal Newman makes one or two very good points straight away about what I said last night. I said that I would go, have gone round had I been raised from the dead uh, to see Caiaphas and give him the works. Now, why didn't our Lord do that? Well, Cardinal Newman answers that. First, he says, we are apt to fancy the resurrection of Christ as some striking visible display of his glory, such as God vouchsafed from time to time to the Israelites in the days of Moses. And considering it in the light of a public triumph, we are led to imagining the confusion and terror which would have overwhelmed the murderers had Christ presented himself alive before them. Now, thus to reason is to conceive Christ's kingdom to be in this world. Our Lord, if we have that view, and I think many artists painting the resurrection had the wrong view, um, if we take the view that Easter Sunday was a triumph, uh, then we would be denying what our Lord said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Our Lord was not interested in the least concerning Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate or Herod. 
They put him to death, but he never spoke another word to the Jews, excepting those who followed him. That our Lord came to found a kingdom not of this world, so he did not in any way go and try and make it a parade. After Easter Sunday, the, his only purpose was to found the church. And those men who said yes, right at the beginning with John the Baptist, and who were tested with him, those were the ones he chose, and from them to us. Secondly, Cardinal Newman points out very well that had he gone round and blown Carfer sky high, he would have been breaking his own law because he said, I have not come into this world to judge. The last judgment comes at the end of time. One day, the people who hanged our Lord on a gibbet, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They may be converted for all we know. I think the odds are against Cuff as being converted, I should imagine, but he could have done. He wasn't judged at all. Our Lord paid no judgment on any of them. He wasn't here for that because he was God, a true God. He simply was not interested in scoring quick points. He came on earth specially to found the church. And so that's the second reason why they, he in no way dealt with his enemies. Thirdly, of course, as Newman points out, the resurrection is the hardest miracle to prove. Again, it's interesting that when God worked this extraordinary thing, the first and only time a man was raised from the dead, you can't prove it. Because our Lord rose at night, he didn't rise. If he suddenly popped up in the temple during the morning service, it would have been a great sensation. It would have been like all your heroes coming back from Iran. Uh, but no, our Lord just got rose in the night. Nobody saw him. As Newman says, it was much easier to prove the feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 witnesses. There was no witness when our Lord rose from the dead. And only the next morning, suddenly, with certain special people who he allowed to touch him and allowed to eat with him, uh, did he make the point. Because our Lord wanted it that way. Such an extraordinary image of God becoming a man and remaining dumb when he could have hit out on Calvary and on Easter Sunday, making no attempt to make a propaganda thing out of it. I believe you and I have quite a lesson to learn even from that point. But then Newman goes on to an even more thrilling point, and that is that when our Lord came on earth, he never got on with crowds. He never could ever deal with them. Because when the first time he met the crowd, they wanted to make him king when he didn't want to be, and he had to run away. When he went to his own hometown of Nazareth, because he worked more miracles elsewhere, they wanted to push him over a cliff. When he talked about the Eucharist, the whole lot began to grumble and then they all left him. The only time our Lord ever got on with a crowd was on Palm Sunday when a few charismatics with palms said hallelujah, but three days later they were saying Barabbas. So that's not very impressive either. No, our Lord simply had no use for crowds. He only dealt with individuals in a crowd, like the good thief, right under the noses of his executioners, or Nicodemus, uh, who came at night, 
or Zacchaeus, the little man who climbed up into a tree, or Mary Magdalene, or the sinful woman who came in and washed his feet, our Lord made it collected an enormous number of people, but they were all friends. This is because he's God. He's not going to be impressed with numbers. I don't think he would ever have used a microphone. I'd like Billy Graham. No, I don't think our Lord ever really wanted uh, to draw big crowds. And the curious thing is that right through church history, it's very, very rare indeed, excepting in the foreign missions, to find any mass conversions. That's why one's always suspicious of all those things. Because a crowd psychology is a revolting thing. It spreads like wildfire, and people are, get out of themselves and become almost hysterical. Much as I admire the charismatic movement, it's interesting to note in history that whenever there's an unstable age in history, you get devil worship on one side and exorcisms and all that rubbish, and you get the charismatic movement on the other. It happened at the Reformation in Boston and in Spain and in England and all over Europe. You get this curious hysteria which I feel we have got today. It's funny that our Lord didn't get on with crowds at all. You get great men who did, and Hitler did. Hitler was a master of oratory, an uneducated man who didn't speak German at all well, had a very rough and crude voice, but strange to say, he had all the technique for winning a whole nation and a very wonderful nation. He copied much of his techniques from the mass because he was a Catholic, and he loved, he thought the church had a wonderful appeal with the crowd, so he borrowed for the Nuremberg rallies and things a lot of the practices that you, he'd seen as a boy in Austria. So he came a little late and he had all these marvelous tunes played on the trumpets before he arrived. Then there was cheering heard off as he approached. The whole crowd was in a sort of emotional state before he appeared. He had all these banners with the blood of those who died in the putsch in Munich, and, they, and everyone kissed them. And the crowd was already crackers before he started speaking. I've met people who actually hated him and said that when he was speaking, you were carried away. And it's an extraordinary thing, yet he had hardly any friends. In Germany, even among the generals, even among the Nazi party, they would tear each other to pieces, they were all jealous, and he himself a very pathetic figure, relying on his intuitions, which is a very clear mark of a man who ought to go to a rest home, and he carried them away with him. He, he was a, quite a good Catholic when he was young, right up to World War I, he went to communion in the trenches. His mother wanted him to be a priest. Thank God that didn't happen. He might have emigrated to America and you might have had Father Adolf Hitler as your pastor now. <laughs> You'd have had some smashing homilies, I can tell you that. <laughs> now, extraordinary that, you see, after Hitler, we've had any number of evangelicals. Uh, the great Wesley, 82 people dropped dead while he was preaching. He was so exciting. Uh, luckily, I haven't got that gift. 
then you've got all these terrible people now on the television. I'm longing to get back to England. If I, the, jet, the jet lag doesn't do me in, I'll be watching the television to see Bjorn Borg, uh, I hope playing in the final for his sixth Wimbledon. He's a marvelous man, I feel, because I saw him at Wimbledon when he was only about 17. And all the silly girls from the whole of Western Europe turned up and shrieked all the time and jumped up and down when Borg was playing. They could have ruined his career, but for his immense concentration, he turned his eyes on these revolting girls and gave them such a look that the whole crowd vanished. And then he went on serving aces. And he, he's a champion, and like Niklas and all these Gary players, because they are not moved by a crowd. But when you see this nonsense today of crowds in football games and others, practically subhuman. And it's a tragedy of our day. I think the media encourages it. And you get this dreadful thing that people are no longer responsible. They turn into a herd of cattle. Our Lord had no use for that at all. And he hasn't today. And that's why the, mass, the mark of Jesus being God is so extraordinary that he didn't speak on Calvary, he didn't make a triumph of his resurrection, and he collected witnesses who were not hysterical. And the church is based on that. And in our day, it's the greatest tribute that we can pay to the risen Christ is to say yes to him by ourselves, to want to witness to other people that he did redeem the world and then leave it to him. So Newman makes a great point of that. He has many sermons on what he calls warm feelings because he'd suffered them when he was an evangelical. And although he loved what he knew of the evangelicals and never in any way derided their sincerity, when he came to read the fathers of the church, these were the points that he was led to make. So we are going to witness to our Lord's resurrection. First of all, we never saw him rise but we've known the people who did see him rise. And therefore, right down over 2,000 years, how sure God is, that's our message. And we are pleased, and we believe it entirely, because historically, Peter and John and Jude and James and Paul would not have said, told us a lie. Secondly, we, we, we witness to the resurrection because it happens inside our hearts as we get older. When you've got a frame of mind, which is all important in this retreat with Newman, when you've done all these acts of do it, little by little you begin to see the pattern in your own soul. You know that you're going to rise again. You get a strange surety and security that comes in middle age and old age, unless you're a child saint, where you suddenly realize this world is leaving you that the risen Christ will be standing by you, and that there's more to life than meets the eye, that the Joneses aren't all important. And you get a security. I'm amazed in my own life as I get older. Yes, I can approve the resurrection from my own prayers, and I'm sure many of you could. There's one third way in which we are witnesses to the resurrection, and this way is terribly important I must read you actually Newman's own words, because we must remember that there was one great heresy directly after Easter. All the 
things about Balaam and all the faults of Joseph and David and the sins we thought about Hezekiah, all that and the jealousy of the Pharisees, all that is finished when our Lord rose. But one heresy came, and I'm sure this is vital to us today. Cardinal Newman, in a sermon which he, quote, which he called The Humiliation of the Eternal Son, and I've quoted some of it in my book, he explained not only do we know God, our Lord, rose, but we must know what we mean by this, what we mean by saying God became a man. And the wording is so perfect, he said it in a pulpit, I don't know how he did without notes, it's wonderful. Now, Newman bases entirely on scripture. When we say the word was made flesh, we do not mean that God selected a particular existing man and dwelt in him. God can do this and does it with the saints, but the word was made flesh is not the same. The son became what he was not before, something totally new in God. He became what he was not before, that he added to his divine essence a human nature, body and soul. They were never other than his, never existed by themselves or other than with him being properties or attributes of him as rarely as his divinity, his divine sonship. All the time he was on earth and now in heaven, the flesh he assumed was the instrument through which he acted for and towards us. St. Paul could say to the elders of Ephesus, feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Accordingly, whatever our Lord said or did upon earth was strictly and literally the word, of good, the word and deed of God himself. And then he makes this marvelous statement at the end. Just as we speak of seeing our friends, though we do not see their souls, only their bodies, so the apostles who saw Christ in the flesh saw the whole world saw what the whole world will see at the last day, the very eternal Son of God. Now that's so important, and Newman is one of the few people who understands the difficulty, because Newman had that very temptation himself. If you want to read it and follow it to see what you can do to witness to the resurrection, you look at the letters of Peter, John, James, Jude. Those four were with John the Baptist. They were on, fed, saw the 5,000 fed, were on Calvary, had the Holy Ghost came to them. These were the ones who were to witness. We've got their words. And the terrible thing is that the Holy Ghost was all still airborne after Pentecost and whizzing around when the first heresy started. The major heresy was among the first Christians, it was so revolting to think that God could become a man that one lot of heretics said he was only an apparition, he was God who appeared like Our Lady of Lourdes, that he never was a man. And there was another lot who held that he was a man only that God raised up. And these are the two great heresies. 
you'll find St. Peter. Peter's first letter is very cheery. He must have been writing to the goodies then. And then the second letter, he lets fly at all these evil people who are spreading stories and running our Lord down. St. John, if you look, even in his first letter, which is all, it's all the sisters who take it because it says God is love, with, and they play it on a guitar. But in, even there he talks about the people who, who are tearing the church to pieces. And he goes on to say they're not the Jews. These are ones who belong, came to us and shouldn't have been in. St. Jude only wrote one letter, and I feel I wouldn't pray to St. Jude unless I've taken the trouble to write, to read his only letter before I meet him. Awkward because I haven't cut the envelope yet. Well, Jude, um, in only one chapter in his letter, he starts off by saying, I was going to send you a lovely letter, but things are so bad that I'll have to let fly. And then he did about these same people. The curious one is John 2. John's second letter and third letter, which are very short, only a paragraph each, John there states quite categorically there are people who are saying that Jesus was not a man, that he was an apparition. So scandalous was the idea of the infinite God coming on earth that they couldn't stomach it. So you get the two great heresies. Newman was accused of it when he was young. He tells us in his own autobiography, the Apologia, of being a Unitarian. Those who say that our Lord was only an apparition are, in fact, Unitarians. Cardinal Newman in the Apologia says, when he was studying the fathers of the church, I looked in that mirror and found I was a monophysite. That's a Unitarian. Only one nature in Jesus. That was the, and it, Newman's brother became a very distinguished Unitarian. Now, if you're a Unitarian, you can't be a Christian. But the much worse heresy was the one that said that Jesus was a man, like the Hindus had it, that God could enter into a man and build him up and could make him uh, very important and holy and God dwelt in him. That's the most common, that's the Arian heresy, which goes on today. So you and I ought to have tremendous things that our Lord created a human body and soul. That it, it never, nobody had it before him and it's with him now. It's as nat natural to him now as when he is divine. And as Newman says, people often say God and man, and that's all wrong, because that's, we're using two words like we say body and soul. What we've got to say is that the nature of man and the nature of God are in one person. It's the person Jesus who has the two. Otherwise, if you say that God made man, it lends itself to Arianism. It's worth reading the letters. Paul had it, and it went on and on in the church, and the Arians eventually spread all around the Mediterranean. It got as far as Spain. It went right along the North African coast. And the only man who really attacked the whole thing was St. Athanasius. And Cardinal Newman had the same affair that when he was studying to try and find out what the early church taught, the saint he began with, the saint he ended with was St. Athanasius. There's a proverb, Athanasius against the world, still used. Athanasius contra mundum. Four times he was exiled from his... He was a secretary at the Council of Nicaea, a man of 26. Then he became, by acclamation, Bishop of Alexandria. 
Then he was turfed out of Alexandria four times. He was in exile. He lived for two long periods with the hermits in the desert. Once he was sent to Germany in exile, and there he carried the Benedictine or pre-Benedictine monastic rule to Trier. Just at the end of his life, he was welcomed back. Now, Athanasius was clear that if our Lord was not full God, he couldn't have come down to give us divinity. That if he only had his divinity on loan, he couldn't have loaned it. That Jesus was true God. Now, I stress that to you at the end of Newman's thing, because this was Newman's whole battle. Eventually, when he tried to build a church of his own and find a common church, he suddenly discovered all the fathers of the church right back from the beginning. This was the point they insisted on. And, of course, Newman was converted finally. The one obstacle he had to being a Catholic eventually was our Blessed Mother. He thought it was ridiculous to put a creature in, on, in front of God. He found it scandalous. And then reading Athanasius and Hilary and all these, he suddenly realized if Jesus was true God, then Mary was the mother of God. As he said, you can say lovely things about our Lord, that he was a holy man, a prophet, that he walked about doing good, he was a healer. You can have Jesus a superstar, Christ the King. You can say the whole world was built by him. Through, through him all things were made. You can say all that. But if at the end there's half an inch difference between God the Father and God the Son, then you can't pray to Our Lady because she's not the mother of God. Jesus is only vice president, and Our Lady is the mother of the vice presidents, which is a bit of a flop. <laughs> no, it's the most interesting thing, like Prince Charles, for us, the Prince of Wales and the vice president, that's what the Arians tried to make of our Lord. And they still do today. I said this last week in the retreat here, and a lovely man came up, a Lutheran, a most devout man, and said, Father, I'm so thrilled, I've always been frightened of devotion to Mary. I never knew there was a reason why you had it. But the funny part was, he said, our church, we are not Aryan. And I felt like saying to him, then why don't you go home and put a statue of our Blessed Mother up to show you're not an Aryan? I didn't get as far as that. He said, we don't have any statues for her. Newman became a Catholic eventually because he realized that Jesus was the living God and that therefore... Our Blessed Mother carried God in her womb. And that's why he then came to have such a devotion to Mary, and indeed it became one of the inspirations of his life, but it was theological. And I would like to think that for us too, that we would make it theological. So I, it's rather a hard thing to pray about, but when I'm, to, when I'm going to witness to Easter, you look at all the churches you've got here in the States, I'll read a list of them at the next talk, how many of them would never dream of having a statue of Mary? Why? Don't they like her? Yes, they love her. No, why don't the Mohammedans have it? Why? Because they didn't, don't really believe that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. So subtle is this heresy. And Newman, having been accused of being an Aryan for a time, he really thought he was. I thought I was once. And then he thought he was a Unitarian. And then it was St. Athanasius and the great doctors who made it very clear what we mean when we witness that God himself came down in this extraordinary way.